Energy has always been such an important tool of statecraft for the Kremlin. But the, the challenge of that tool is that tool is losing efficacy because of uh, the change in energy mix, particularly to its primary market, Europe. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the CSIS Energy Security and Climate Change Program. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. Today's show brings together four CSIS experts to talk about global economic and geopolitical competition. From the energy team, we have Sarah Ladislaw and Nico Safos, who recently authored the report, Race to the Top, the Case for a New U.S. International Energy Policy. The report focuses on geopolitical competition with the United States, Russia, and China. So we brought in Heather Connolly and Scott Kennedy to talk about the state of relations among these great powers. Heather is our Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic and Director of the CSIS Europe Program. And Scott is Senior Advisor and the Trustee Chair in Chinese Business and Economics. Here's Nikos to lead that conversation. Well, thank you, both of you, for being here today. Our report was predicated on this idea of uh, the changes underway in the geopolitical and the economic and energy landscape. Uh, and so today, we wanted to really explore the geopolitical dimensions of that analysis. And so we're so delighted to have two of our leading experts here at CSIS to talk about that. Scott, let me start with you. Give us a sense of how you characterize the state of U.S.-China relations right now. Uh, well, thanks, Nikos uh, and Sarah. I'm happy to be here. I would say that uh, the relationship now is in a horrible place. Uh, it, there is no floor to the U.S.-China relationship the way there has been in the past. Uh, the Trump administration went from uh, trying to sweet talk uh, Xi Jinping with a cake summit in Mar-a-Lago in April of 2017 to uh, USTR Lighthizer trying to pressure the Chinese to change industrial policy with tariffs, to essentially giving up on all those things and just trying to uh, hit the Chinese with everything we've got. Uh, every day there's something new. Uh, this may be for domestic political reasons, but it also seems just the weight of the administration has shifted. And the Chinese aren't helping at all. Uh, they are responding uh, negatively in every way and also generating a lot of the problems uh, themselves as we're, we're seeing in Hong Kong. Uh, and so uh, we are in a strategic competition uh, using every uh, legit, illegit, licit, illicit tool at our disposal. And I don't see it getting... Um, um, you know, stabilized uh, for a while, uh, the, given the way both sides uh, are, are acting, it's really disconcerting. Uh, and um, each day I uh, look at the news wondering what, what new additional thing are we going to do? What are they going to do? Uh, where are we going to be? Uh, and, and so I'm really worried. That makes it very difficult for us to try and cooperate on areas where we really need to, including in energy. You talked about the Trump administration's approach. How much of this you think is sort of the Trump administration's uh, handling of China versus deeper structural uh, differences that the two countries have? And, and you know, what might you expect in the Biden administration if, if uh, Biden were to be elected? Yeah, I, I've been really wrestling with this issue of uh, structure, Thucydides traps, inevitability uh, versus what I see in the newspapers and on TV 
uh, every day in terms of the actions of um, the U.S. government. And um, obviously there are, you know, structural reasons like, you know, both sides have a lot of power. China is a rising power. Uh, we are competing in this, a lot of the same technology spaces. China wants security around its periphery. The U.S. wants to defend its allies in Indo-Pacific. You know, China's got a political system which is different than ours. And, and so, but, you know, obviously there are these very serious tensions which any administration would face. But I think the way the Trump administration is going about it exacerbates these. Uh, the internal policy making chaos, the changing on a dime, uh, the lack of, of coordination with our allies, the efforts to score sh short term points, almost no communication between both sides. We haven't, uh, President Trump and Xi Jinping haven't talked in months. Uh, those things make this much worse. So I think. Not to say a different administration wouldn't have serious issues with China, but I don't think it would take a lot of work to make things feel different, at least uh, tangibly so, if there was some more coherence in how policy was made, greater coordination with allies, uh, clear goal setting. And I think that would make a difference. It wouldn't feel like things are spinning out of control the way it feels like now. But, you know, I, I may be idealistic and tilting at windmills thinking that sort of a change in the way policy is made and coordinated might make a difference. Heather, let me ask you the, the same question because the U.S.-Russia relationship also uh, feels at times that it is uh, bad and getting worse. How, how do you think of the state of that relationship? So thanks so much, Nikos and, and Sarah. Well, the state of the U.S.-Russia relationship is all entirely about uh, who, whom you're asking that question. Uh, if you're asking the intelligence community and, and the Defense Department, uh, they would say that this is a very adversarial role from, you know, intelligence potentially of, of Russia paying the Taliban to kill American soldiers in Afghanistan to even the most recent announcement that uh, there have been Russian uh, hacking of U.S., British, and Canadian scientists over providing a, a vaccine uh, for, for COVID-19. If you ask Congress, they are focused on Russian election interference um, and making sure that the 2020 elections are, are protected. They are focusing on Nord Stream 2 and the Russian pipeline to carry uh, energy supplies to, to Europe. Um, if, if you ask the State Department, they're focusing on malign influence that Russia is perpetuating across Europe, the Middle East, Africa, Latin America. They're focusing on arms control, potentially uh, extending the New START agreement. And of course, if you ask President Trump in the White House, you will get a completely different answer where uh, unlike the president having uh, no conversation with Xi Jinping, he has been speaking a lot to Vladimir Putin, particularly in March, as you well know, because of the, the drop in energy prices and trying to uh, uh, steady that uh, because Russia started literally a price war uh, against the United States uh, in Saudi Arabia uh, to the president wanting to invite Vladimir Putin to rejoin the G7 because the United States uh, is now the chair of the G7. So it's extremely confusing, I'm sure, to any watcher of this. What is the U.S.-Russian relationship? It depends on whom you ask, and then it depends on what they're interested in accomplishing. So a very, very mixed picture. 
let me ask you the same thing I asked Scott in terms of, again, how you think about the uh, cyclical, temporary versus more structural uh, aspects of this relationship and, and how you would think things would change or stay the same uh, if Joe Biden were to be elected. Well, it was then Vice President Biden in February of uh, 2009 who announced the U.S.-Russian reset at the Munich Security Conference. So in some ways, he was uh, the author of that. And, and the reason that there was a, a, a critical need to reset the relationship was because Russia had invaded Georgia in August of 2008. Um, of course, that reset very much came to an end well before uh, the annexation of Crimea and the incursion into uh, Donbass, but U.S. governments has have successively tried to reset the Russian relationship for 25 plus years, and absolutely doesn't matter whether it's a Republican or Democratic administration fail, and they fail. And I think you know, just pulling on Scott's uh, conversation, why? Because we fundamentally don't agree on things like territorial integrity. We believe Ukraine is sovereign. It should control its border. It should have control over what crosses its border. Uh, and Russia does not believe that Ukraine is sovereign. It doesn't really believe Belarus is sovereign. And so we have this, this very clear disagreement. Um, but we also see a Russia uh, over the last 10 years, and I think almost going back to 2011 and the Arab awakening uh, and the change, regime changes that we were seeing, you see now a Russian government that is dedicating itself to disrupt uh, the, the international system, to certainly change the US leadership of that uh, international system, but its entire goal is regime preservation. Of course, we've just seen over the last two weeks where the Russian constitution has been changed and Vladimir Putin has reset his uh, position of power until 2036. So uh, huge challenges, no matter what the administration, these challenges aren't going to go away. Thank you so much for all of this important context. I mean, it really reflects some of what we came into writing this report, uh, thinking about one of the things that we recommend is that it's important for the U.S. not to get caught up in sort of a geopolitical tit for tat, that that's not going to be the most productive avenue for us going forward in either one of these relationships, but instead sort of lean into this geoeconomic competition, right, to think about doubling down on the U.S. competitiveness. And in our case, it's in the area of clean energy technologies and places where we think that with a little bit of strategic effort, the U.S. could uh, really up our game in those departments. But one of the critical questions there is how would that be received by China and Russia, right? I mean, a lot of our foreign policy dynamics are about what we choose to try and do and what they respond with. So, you know, Scott, maybe starting with you, you you've been broadly pretty critical of some of the aspects of Chinese industrial policy, which I think when we talk about, you know, competing with China, there's a lot of cautionary tales that, you know, people will bring forward saying, oh, well, we don't want to compete in just the same way that they do uh, in terms of our industrial strategy, or we're not quite capable. We don't have state-owned enterprises and all of those types of things. So what do you think um, about the, you know, Chinese performance and this widely held view that they are real geostrategic competitors when it comes to energy and other industries where they've decided they want to be competitive, and how would they respond to the U.S.? 
trying to compete more overtly with them in some of those areas? Sure, that's a, that's a great question. And it's really uh, critical to de determine exactly where the Chinese are strong, where they're weak, where what they're doing is constructive for various industries, where it's harmful uh, in determining how the US ought to respond and, and what it should do, what's possible. Um, my sense is, is that China's record in, in its high-tech drive is quite mixed, including in, in energy-related industries, both energy generation uh, and renewables like wind and solar, where they have uh, produced, uh, they generate a, as much capacity as anybody, if not way more, but at the same time in a very inefficient way uh, with a lot of waste. Um, and that's the same for uh, clean energy sectors of the future that are the users of that energy, like electric vehicles, uh, where there's also a great deal of waste in, in, in these sectors where the tech bar is, is significant. I couldn't design any of this stuff. Uh, maybe you all could, but I couldn't. Uh, but it's not the, the most crazy rocket science. It's, it's, it's advanced. And you can throw a bunch of money and scale up. Uh, when you get those two things, sort of medium quality technology demands and scale up, that's, that's China's sweet spot. Uh, it also leads to massive waste. And now, China doesn't have uh, the same types of budget constraints that we do because of SOEs, state-owned banks, uh, the communist system, which says, you know, we'll take on anything and forgive debt if we think it's important enough. Uh, that may be good enough for them, but it's not good enough for us. Maybe we're now in an era during the pandemic where we have said budget deficits don't matter and stuff like that. But really, that's that's fantasy land for America during normal times. And so we have to figure out how to promote these technologies in a uh, energy transition, both the creation of the energy and how it's used uh, in a way that is much more efficient uh, than the Chinese. That may involve greater state involvement, uh, federal and local, but I think it's gonna have to involve much more careful involvement, more partnerships uh, between government and industry and nonprofits, including think tanks, uh, very high standards, very clear accountability and transparency uh, processes, and allowing for technological diversity so that the market can choose which technologies and markets succeed as opposed to state fiat. I think that's the biggest difference where we can do things differently than China. I think actually if we do that, we're relatively open. I, I think that's, uh, the Chinese will see that we're on our game uh, and they respect that. I don't think it necessarily means that we have to just block the Chinese out of our markets entirely unless they continue to act uh, as they're doing. I don't think that we ought to allow them to dump all their stuff in our market or on third markets. But we can, through a more assertive strategy of our own, try and reshape what we do and how the has played. And I think that will be a good disciplinary force on the Chinese to get them to play better. Heather, same general type of question for you. You know, you've written a lot about the Kremlin playbook and the way in which, you know, Russia uses a, a wide variety of strategies and investments to sort of undermine the broad-based interest of the West, if you will. Uh, you know, how do you think about energy in that context? Because it is different from U.S. competition vis-a-vis -vis China, right? It's a bit of a different game. So how do you think about the U.S. competing with Russia on energy? 
Yeah, thanks, Sarah. I mean, energy has always been such an important tool of statecraft for the Kremlin, uh, whether it is, you know, preventing the flow of Russian energy to Europe to get change in behavior, that's certainly Ukraine or Belarus, or giving very favorable uh, energy prices to a regime uh, in order to get what it wants. It's, it's always been a tool. But the, the challenge of that tool is that tool is losing efficacy because of uh, the change in energy mix, to, particularly to its primary market, Europe. So, but this is also an economic issue, quite frankly. The Russian economy requires uh, high energy prices and continued use of fossil fuels. That, that's really the, the Kremlin's bet on, on Russia's economic future. And I think that that bet is deeply flawed. When you look at Europe, look at its ambitions as far as climate, uh, it, its goals to reduce um, the, the carbon footprint, its focus on renewables, and, and even, quite frankly, its demographic picture, which will be diminishing as its population gets older, it's going to need your uh, Russian energy supplies less and less and less. Meanwhile, because the U.S. now is, is such a dominant player in the energy space, this is in part why Russia decided it needed to get into a little energy pricing war to help push the U.S. away from challenging Russia's competitiveness uh, in energy. So you see these both of these dynamics play, and they, they, they do not advantage uh, Russia at all. And so let me just sort of focus this a little bit what we're seeing right now in real time playing. Because Ukraine is now pulled away from Russia's orbit, what has it been trying to do for the last several years is now build pipelines around it. Uh, that's a punishment mechanism because Ukraine really relies on those transit fees as well as the energy. So the construction of Nord Stream 1 and now Nord Stream 2 and Turk Stream, which is the southern stream, is a pincer move around Ukraine. This is Russia using its energy uh, to, to punish, to reward, to create dependency, which is why on a bipartisan basis, the United States does not want Europe to be more dependent on Russian energy. If anything, I, I'd like to tell particularly our, our German and colleagues that their climate ambitions are so important. Why are they increasing their fossil fuel dependency when their agenda is so bold on climate change? So hopefully uh, we'll see a reduction of dependence uh, by Europe on Russian energy. We will see all of the variety of sources, whether it's US LNG, whether it's renewables, whether it's a combination, we just want diversity of supply and that will enhance European security. And quite frankly, it will force Russia to reform. It will force Russia to modernize its economy, which quite frankly is the best thing for future Russian stability. Unfortunately, we don't have any of those factors today. Let me come back to this uh, question of sort of the tension on the fault lines and build on what um, Heather was just talking about and, and take us to a couple of other theaters. Uh, one of the theaters that we spent a lot of time talking about was um, Asia and emerging Asia, and particularly through the Belt and Road Initiative. So coming back to you, Scott, uh, giving us a sense of where are we in terms of Beijing's thinking about the Belt and Road Initiative, what it has accomplished, or what it is trying to accomplish, and how should we think about that going forward? Um, the Belt and Road, um, which was launched in 2013 or so, um, and now has been going on for seven years, 
has, has gone through a whole variety of, of changes. I consider it a Christmas tree in which uh, what it really looks like depends on the ornaments you, you put on it. Uh, and that can has been changing over time. Uh, and, and so it can, it can address a whole lot of different types of political and economic challenges uh, that, that the Chinese face. And, and so I think originally it was about transitioning China to move up the value add chain in domestic production and moving those things that they weren't as competitive anymore and producing labor intensive stuff abroad. And then also finding new markets for Chinese products. Um, I think it's, it's grown into trying to figure out, well, if they're not gonna have as extensive an economic relationship with the United States, can they build communication channels and markets and relationships with uh, Europe, with Africa and, el and elsewhere? Uh, the Belt and Roads geography is now, almost anything can be called the Belt and Road. There's even the, you know, the Arctic can be part of the Belt and Road, honestly. Uh, I, I expect them to, to say one side of the moon will be Belt and Road soon. Uh, so they've expanded the definition of what the Belt and Road is uh, and what it can do. At the same time, uh, China's economy is, is turned significantly since they started. They were flush with cash uh, and they were throwing it around willy-nilly uh, through the state enterprises and lo and behold, they had domestic financial difficulties. And in 2018, uh, 17, they really started to pull back. So the amount of outflow has decreased significantly. And I think the pandemic has exacerbated that even further so that the levels of, of, of Chinese investment have, have slowed quite a bit. Uh, they've also received a lot of pushback because they have been trying to move, for example, coal-fired power plants or uh, other types of investment, which they're good at in terms of infrastructure on countries uh, that, that really can't afford it. Uh, and so we've seen cases in Sri Lanka and elsewhere of problems. So I, I think in the end, those are all really good disciplining reactions to, to the initial uh, uh, efforts of the Belt and Road. Obviously, there's important diplomatic, strategic elements to it. Um, but I think at, at this point, uh, it's it's probably m still more advertising than the geostrategic threat that that many portray it as. I do think we need to be pay attention to it. I don't. I think that the things that the U.S. has been doing with Japan uh, and through the Blue Dot program, uh, which are a good alternative to what the Chinese have been doing on the Belt and Road. But I don't think we need to match them dollar for dollar, locale for locale along the Belt and Road. I think we should figure out our own strategy and make them react to us. Heather, let me come back to you on another theater that uh, Scott alluded to in his uh, response about the Belt and Road Initiative, but it's also a topic that you're very passionate and you've written a lot about the Arctic. Um, so tell us a little bit about what Russia is trying to do in the Arctic, how it's thinking about the Arctic, and what this all means. Indeed, the polar silk road, Belt and Road, has has come to the Arctic. So you're right, which actually is a great way to, to have a conversation about where China and Russia are meeting, and that is indeed in, in the Arctic. But exactly as Scott's saying, you know, um, the the pandemic and the, the, the true disruption of global energy prices is going to have a profound, it is having a profound impact uh, on the Arctic. So for Russia, the Arctic is its economic future. And this is a, the development of both the energy resources and mineral resources and the transshipment through the Northern Sea Route 
uh, Vladimir Putin has put an enormous amount of his own personal prestige, his interest. As I said, this is really a bet that the Russians are, are making. You know, the Russians acknowledge that they, they fell far behind. Uh, they were so focused on Europe as their primary energy market that they, we were, they were very late and turning to the Asian Pacific market for energy. Um, and uh, in fact, the Arctic and its development, particularly Arctic LNG, which is concentrated right now in the Yamal LNG one and two projects, really allows Russia to catch up in the LNG department but it also enhances their ability to, to affect markets both uh, in Europe, North America, as well as, as Asia. So there's this huge concentration on developing Arctic LNG. The problem is now the price is a huge challenge. Uh, it's very expensive uh, to do Arctic uh, exploration. Um, you have the additional U.S. sanctions target Arctic energy exploration, which of course is what forced ExxonMobil to move out of, out of the Arctic because of, of U.S. sanctions. Now you have uh, international investors that are pledging to not uh, fund any future Arctic exploration. Again, this is meeting the demand signal from shareholders that they don't, they want a, you know, a green agenda and climate to be top of mind when investing. So what's happening is Russia is growing increasingly reliant on China for development of the Russian Arctic, but China isn't hugely interested. Uh, they love the low prices, they will contribute, but this is not a, a major source for them. So here you have this combination on, uh, of uh, Russia needing the Arctic to develop as a major uh, energy uh, future for them as their Siberian fields continue to be depleted. But there are massive questions about whether the Arctic will, in fact, uh, be a major energy contributor if prices don't increase. And uh, as we've been seeing over the last two months with these terrible, terrible uh, diesel spill in Norilsk, um, where upwards of 21,000 uh, tons of diesel spilled uh, locally, the environmental consequences of permafrost thaw, coastal erosion, um, the, the environmental impact of the Russian Arctic is now becoming uh, increasingly costly to Russia in addition as they explore the benefits. So this is one of these really interesting regions where um, it is a huge area of importance for Russia's energy future. And that future is really in doubt. And we'll have to watch how this plays out over time. Scott and Heather, it, you know, based on something you just said, Heather, actually two things you just said, I just wanted to ask, you know, one more question, which is, you know, there's a lot of speculation about the potential growing strength of a China-Russia relationship, whether that's something we need to be thinking about on a much more strategic level. Um, and then also, you know, maybe Scott specifically, we've we've seen sort of the penchant for sanctions uh, to to really work its way into defining the U.S.-Russia relationship in a lot of ways. We've been a little more reluctant on the China side uh, to implement sanctions to quite the same level. I I'm just curious on both of those fronts. Maybe starting with you, Scott. Um, you know, what do you think is the potential for tighter sort of China-Russia relations? And, and in addition, what trajectory do you see sanctions as a tool of U.S. foreign policy uh, dealing with China going forward? Because both of those issues seem like big strategic departures from the world that we're, we're living in now. Heather's probably going to be able to speak to this better than me. Uh, I've, I've been surprised that 
the marriage of convenience between Beijing and Moscow lasted so long. And, you know, once you're cohabitating long enough, maybe it's just like a civil marriage and you don't even need to get the paperwork done. And so maybe this will go on for a while. Um, they uh, have, in a variety of ways, uh, benefited from the animus both share against the United States, which I think pulls them together in lots of places. Obviously, the Chinese love inexpensive fossil fuels um, and uh, don't and want to limit the anxieties that they've long felt about their long border with Russia on security issues. So there's from the Chinese side, you could see reasons why they'd want to uh, bury the hatchet for a while. Heather can speak to the Russian motivations for this. But let me say in terms of the energy side of this and the energy transition, I think that there's really differences between the two. Russia doesn't benefit from an energy transition and the move toward addressing climate change in the way that China does. Russia is primarily a fossil fuel provider, as Heather said. The Chinese are primarily fossil fuel consumers globally, internationally, and they are big producers of new energy, uh, energy generation, transmission, and downstream usages. Uh, and so that puts them on different sides of, of that. And actually, even though the US and China have significant areas of competition with each other uh, and strategic competition, the US and China actually are very similar in terms of their potential benefits from renewable energies and green technologies. Uh, what they are fighting over is how it's funded and you know, whether you can use subsidies and who the subsidies go to and what happens to all the information that's generated that you need in the process of doing that. Uh, and so if the US and China can find a way to mitigate those risks, limit those differences with regard to industrial policy, with regard to information and data, uh, then they ought to be able to find a way to work to, on these things. And we ought not to have to just simply resort to a relationship between the US and China, which is about sanctions and, and the US treating Beijing essentially a rogue player across the board. I think we may see more of that we've seen in the recent, recent days with regard to Hong Kong and elsewhere. But I don't think that has to be an across the board approach that the US has with China. It, it, again, it feels like the sky is falling and that's where we're inevitably headed. But I do think because we have some overlapping interests at the core that the US doesn't share with Russia, some diplomatic work, some preparation, some coordination might be able to get us to a place where we aren't treating Beijing in the same way it looks like we're treating Moscow. That's great, Scott, thanks. Heather, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I wanna dive a little bit more into that question of why has this marriage of convenience lasted? quite so long. I think in part, Beijing uh, has, and, and Xi Jinping himself, has shown great deference to Vladimir Putin, and that does count for something. I think you're seeing Russia now begrudgingly, it, the Russian strategic community would not say this out loud, and they feel very uncomfortable with it, but Russia is now assuming that role of junior partner because of its economic needs. And so in some ways, Russia can sustain its great power status by moving more towards China, whether that's blocking things together on the Security Council. And that becomes sort of that anti-US, anti-Western approach. Again, both Russia and China were not part 
of the post-World War II international order. They felt they were left out. And now, because the rules are changing and we're in a transition in period, they can start creating the rules that serve their interests. But it, Russia moving towards China was a, a, an economic necessity. As I mentioned, sanctions and energy pushed Russia more towards China. And uh, China shows them respect. But it's exactly to Scott's point, this doesn't mask the incredible discomfort that both sides have for one another. Russian population does not like China, Chinese citizens, and the tourism that has come. Uh, the Russian authorities actually have had a hard time managing that anger. And if you could call it racism, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's a great deal of anger. And, and so you, you have those friction points that I think a smart, flexible, nimble US policy would increase the frictions between Beijing and Moscow while trying to move uh, them towards outcomes that, that we see. The challenge, and we've just released a major report um, that looks at Chinese and Russian influence activities, it, Russian influence activities in Europe and Chinese activities uh, in Japan and, and Australia. We did a little comparison. And what we're start was concerning us and, and the period of response to the pandemic have really accentuated this. China is now following the Kremlin playbook a little too much. Uh, they are now using similar disinformation tactics, anti-US sentiment. There are some, we're told, some strategic documents from the, the Chinese community that's starting to say, hey, maybe those hybrid tactics that Russia has been using, you know, the deniability, the little green men, they are able to shape the terrain better. Now, so this is my concern, that China, which has not taken the Russian approach to hybrid warfare and their disinformation, their influence activities are, are designed to help reduce criticism, uh, to make sure that they can achieve their economic goals. They're starting to change and they're, char they're starting to pattern themselves a little bit after Russian tactics. And again, if we start to see, again, as we saw during the height of the, the initial phase of the pandemic, in, say in Spain and Italy, we saw Russian and Chinese influence and disinformation hitting it at the same time. It's a double whammy. So we have to think about this again for the United States. This is an allied approach. Our strength are our allies and Russia and China have no natural allies. And that's the Indo-Pacific strategy, that's NATO. Uh, we just, unfortunately, the United States has forgotten how essential allies are in managing the challenge that both China and Russia pose, very different challenges, but I don't like the fact that we're starting to see China behave and pattern themselves a little, a little bit after Russian tactics. Scott, Heather, uh, thank you so much for joining us. This was a fantastic conversation. I look forward to continuing uh, to talk about these topics in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to our CSIS colleagues, Heather and Scott, for joining Energy 360 this week. You can find links to their work and to the report Race to the Top on our website. Find more episodes of Energy 360 at CSIS.org and wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy and let us know what you think. As always, thanks for listening.